Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson and the ministry staff at Lofstofan are grateful that you are joining us for today's study in God's Word. As a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The following was recorded on Sunday, December 17, 2023. Today's message title, The Songs of Christmas, Part 3, Angels from Luke Chapter 2. This time of year for a lot of people in most contexts, this is where churches in the West tend to grow the most and have the most people come to services because it's Christmas time. We have some Christians who would only, or at least the name, would only come to church in, during Easter or Christmas. But here in Iceland, it's almost the exact opposite. <laughs> this is the time of year where we have the lowest attendance and it's where the, the darkness is the heaviest and the weather is the worst. But how awesome it is to come and remember the joy, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So today, I want us to, to stand together as we think, uh, think about the songs of the angels in Luke 2. Uh, we're dwelling on verses 1 through 21. And it says here in our text as we read together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, so let's do a little survey here. 
how many of us have um have been through an experience of having our firstborn child uh, and in other ways how many of us are parents in here have been gone through the birthing process all right roughly half be fruitful and multiply to the rest of you uh no i'm just kidding uh, it's it's a strange process like i don't know about you <laughs> you can read books about it uh you can you can uh go to seminars about being a parent uh, I think we did. We, we even went through seminars through like giving birth, like how to breathe and what the the dad is supposed to do because you kind of feel useless. You're just kind of standing there, right? Um, but there's nothing that can really prepare you for this. And I, I, I keep thinking to my, like, I remember the freakiest, scariest time of my life was going through the birthing process. A baby was born and especially... When the nurses, after one night at the hospital, said, well, we need this bed, so you're going to have to go home. And here I was just holding a soul in my hands. And no book could prepare for, for, for that scenario. Like nothing. No seminar. Nothing. I remember I have never driven so slowly in my life as when I put my child in the backseat. And I was driving, making everybody crazy in traffic. I did not care at all. I had a soul in the backseat that was under my care. And it was the freakiest thing. And I'm reading this story and I'm asking myself, if that was scary for me, I had a phone. I could call my mom. Mom, this little human is doing something I've never seen before. Do, do you recognize this? I could ask for help. They didn't have any of this. This is Mary and Joseph. They are separated from the rest of their family with no phone, no communication in a town that seemingly don't want them there. Otherwise, as we mentioned last week, like in a Middle Eastern culture known for their hospitality, someone would have probably offered them their room to stay in, right? Why are they where the animals are? Why is there a baby lying in a manger? Possibly because they're not married, they're betrothed and she's pregnant, right? So not only are they away from family and friends, no communication, no friend to call in times of trouble, having their firstborn kid. And yet when we have our little Christmas manger scenes, everything seems so sanitized and nice. Joseph is so calm and Mary is just, she knows exactly how to handle this human baby soul, right? I was just asking myself, man, this must have been a crazy experience. And that's what I want to try to remind us as we go into this, because a lot of this can seem so ethereal. We're talking about angels. Anybody see angels this week? Anybody? No? None of you? I mean, what, what, is, what is wrong with us? How, how, are, we, how are we doing? Because <laughs> angels, you don't see them every Wednesday, right? They don't just appear. And normally when they appear in scriptures, they have to tell the people, don't freak out. Don't be scared. They're not the little baby angels with tiny wings, the little chubby with a little bow and arrow that we know from the pictures. Now, these are terrifying angels. They don't come in every Wednesday. This seems so ethereal. This seems so, I don't know, just not something you experience, right? This sounds like, I don't know if a sci-fi tale is the right thing for, for this, but it sounds made up. And what I want to remind us as we go into Christmas is this is real place, real humans for, for all the parents in the room who have gone through having a child and how terrifying that is. Imagine Joseph and Mary in that context, 
away from everyone they know, seemingly in a town that doesn't want anything to do with them, having a first child. How terrifying this all is. And then having random shepherds come in from the fields saying, we saw some angels telling us there was a kid here that's supposed to be our king and Lord and savior. Man, this is awesome. And so before we dwell on the song of the angels, let me rewind and take us back to the first seven verses of today. Um, and uh, I, wanna, I wanna get a little historical context. Oh, I forgot one verse. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So as we go back to first seven verses, I, I love the writing of Luke because he's very meticulous. Like he starts off his book, um, like he's a doctor uh, by trade, it seems, from uh, Paul's letters. He's traveling around as, as a doctor for some of them. He mentions things that maybe a doctor would only realize, like uh, at the crucifixion, he, he talks about, oh, when he was stabbed, there was water and blood that flowed from him. That's maybe stuff that only a doctor would, would think about recounting in a gospel. Um, so he's a doctor and he's very meticulous. And even though he wasn't there for for any of this, he wasn't a first-hand witness. He's compiling uh, testimonies from all these different eyewitnesses from different people, and and he says so in verse verses uh, one through three in in uh, in his gospel. He says, "Inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, I uh, word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also." having followed all the things closely for some time past to write down an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So why is Luke writing this? He says, man, I just want to be meticulous. I want to take down eyewitness testimony and I want to compile them into one gospel that is the gospel of Luke. And when he mentions here, excellent Theophilus, that could be a name, right? Could be an awesome sounding Roman name, like my friend who I, I was, oh man, I'm blanking on the name right now. Cornelius, no, not Corinius. Yeah, there. that just sounds very just majestic, that name. Theophilus sounds the same to me. It's like, hello, my name is Theophilus. <laughs> um, so it could be a name for someone or uh, because the New Testament is written in Greek, it actually means uh, Theo, Philip, Philus. <laughs> uh, so it's the same Theo, it means God. Uh, Phyllis, you know this word from philosophy, right? Uh, 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 philosophia, philosophia, meaning the love of wisdom. So here it, it could be just, hey, this is a letter for anybody who is a lover of God. Theo, Phyllis, he is a lover of God. So it could just be a letter to you and me, or it could be an actual person who maybe paid Luke to say, hey, I want to give you all the things, the time that you need to, to compile this account and to put this into a book. We don't really know. I like this. This is written to the lovers of God. If you are a lover of God, Luke is saying, hey, this account is for you so that you would know this has happened. So what do we see in the first seven verses here today? Um, well, there are a few things. First, Luke is highlighting that even though these accounts may seem like something that's just out of a storybook, because again, we don't see angels every Wednesday and Tuesday, right? He is highlighting that this is actually happening. 
These are actual angels appearing in actual places to actual people in actual real time. And he wants to highlight this, that this is real. After all, we are reading about a host of angels that are singing in the sky. <laughs> He's saying, I know, I know you have probably nothing, ex never experienced anything like this, but this is happening in a real field to real shepherds. And it's really easy for us to, to just read this text as another story, you know, as like a Star Wars story, like the intro to Star Wars in a galaxy far, far away. There were, you know, shepherds in the field. But Luke doesn't allow us to do that. He goes to great lengths to highlight this is real. And you see these historical anchors in the text. First, he grounds this in real time because believe it or not, they then use a calendar that referred to after Christ when it was just around his birth. Right? What year is it right now? It's like 1 AD, you know? Christ should be born just about now. Yes, exactly. No. So he's grounding this in real time. And how he does that is he refers to, uh, he refers to, uh, what, what other historians do. They, they nail down a date for something by referring to who's in charge, right? Who is, who is the emperor? Who is the king? Who is, you know, the governor? And he mentions there, um, Augustus Caesar and Quirinius, the governor of Syria, which included uh, to rule over Judea as the uh, as the tax collector for the Roman Empire. Is this is this exciting, you guys? Right? Like, this is not exciting. Talking about taxes in the Roman Empire, <laughs> but this is this is what's cool to me as as a guy who just loves history. Ever since Christ came, we stopped referring to oh the seventh year of so and so or the fourteenth year of so and so. It's been one king ever since Christ came. It's like the 20, uh, 2023rd year of the rule and reign of Jesus and his church here on earth. And I love that about this, but what, what he's doing there when he's re referring to Caesar Augustus, when he's referring to Quirin, uh, Quirinius, the governor of Syria, is he's saying, this is the time period when all this is happening. So he has these historical anchors telling us this happened at a real time in real history. This is not a fantasy novel happened a long, long time ago but rather something that has actually happened. And Caesar Augustus um, highlights this. Uh, the, the fact that he mentions Caesar Augustus highlights this, um, that this is in the Roman Empire. More than that, more specifically, he zooms in and he talks about Joseph and how he moves from Galilee to Nazareth to, to Bethlehem and Judea. So he's mentioning very specific places. And in this narrative, we get a glimpse into who Luke's witnesses are. Again, Luke wasn't there. So who is he relying in, on in all of this while well, he mentions that Mary pondered all these things in her heart? So possibly his eyewitness is Mary because otherwise who would know what's happening in Mary's heart other than Mary herself? Maybe he's talking to the shepherds themselves who were in the field or maybe just Mary who told him their story. We don't know. But Luke is highlighting this. That this Christmas birth narrative is no work of fiction or fantasy, but it is the good news of God breaking into our human existence to do something with the arrival of Jesus. And more than that, Jesus is born into a time 
where Caesar Augustus has propped himself up as a political savior. And I don't know, I don't know, politicians tend to do this, right? <laughs> politicians tend to not just seemingly settle for doing a good job, but some politicians want to prop themselves up as the savior of the nation or of the world. And Caesar Augustus was no exception to this. He had propped himself up as a political savior. And his story has been unfolding for decades at this point when Jesus is born. Um, he has slowly defeated all of his enemies. Um, be they, uh, there's one guy called Lepidius, Lep Lepidus, I think you pronounce his name. Um, another enemy of his called Anthony. And uh, you might know the uh, Cleopatra, Cleopatra, right? Some of you know her. <laughs> they were some of his enemies. And he had slowly over the decades sort of eliminated all of his threats, all of his, uh, all of the people who would threaten his title and he was secured his reign and he changed his name. So before he was known as Octavian and now he changed his name into Caesar Augustus. And it led to a prosperity, especially among the capital, not so many, not so much by the, by the people he plundered and brought money to the capital, but it led to prosperity and good news for some of the people in the Roman Empire. And he would transform Rome away from being a republic where every human being was subject to a law into more of an empire ruled by one man, an emperor. And he started to elevate himself, even in the changing of his name for Octavian. The, the title or name Augustus means exalted or sacred. And so he was starting to elevate himself and prop himself up as this political savior. And yet here in our verses, I love this, how Luke mentions that this is when Caesar Augustus is reigning. This is when he gives an account that everybody should be registered. Apparently Caesar Augustus is the type of guy who, who loves Excel spreadsheets or something like that. Uh, but he talks about Caesar Augustus and him giving out a command. But I love the way Luke uses Caesar Augustus, not only as an anchor, hey, this is happening in real time, at a real place, but also to show Caesar Augustus was not the elevated political savior of the world. He was being used by God to bring about the real savior. Yes, he may bear the name of exalted and sacred, but he was being used by God to bring in the real one who was exalted and sacred, even with something like, him thinking he's the boss saying, hey, everybody needs to be registered so that we can get more taxes. God was saying, no, I'm going to actually use you to bring about the real king of kings, the real kingdom of God. And his degree was being used to prepare the way for the real exalted one to come, the real sacred one to come at the right place, at the right time in Bethlehem, just as God had promised. And, and I love this. So Micah chapter five, it talks about this promise of a savior coming to Bethlehem. He says, but to you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, <laughs> I'm just reading this confidently. I don't know idea how you say that. Who are you to come little? Uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah? From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. So there is the promise of a savior 
coming to a real place in real time in Bethlehem. And God is using those who would seem mighty, like, like Caesar Augustus, to say, no, I'm going to use you to bring Jesus into Bethlehem to fulfill the promise I made hundreds of years ago. So in the midst of Luke, setting for us all these historical anchors of places and people and time, we zoom out and we zoom in to this field in verses 8 through 12, where a seemingly typical night is about to be transformed into something very, very, very unique for these shepherds. And here we are, we have these shepherds in the field taking care of sheep at night, just as they would any other night of the week. Now, if you read your scriptures, you might come away with the idea that being a shepherd was a pretty neutral job description, right? Or maybe even an elevated job description, because if you read through the Old Testament, you see that a lot of the quotes, uh, the the, the um, God uh, referring to himself actually refers to himself as a shepherd. Like even in Micah, what we just read, he refers to himself as a shepherd who is coming for his people. And in Psalm 23, anybody know that song? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And what is God doing there in that text? He's referring to himself as a shepherd. Ezekiel 34, another place in the Bible where God is condemning the shepherds of Israel for not doing their job, saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to be the good shepherd who's going to lead my people. And that was the title for God before it was a secondhand clothing store. The good shepherd. God. So when Jesus comes along and says, I am the good shepherd, what is he doing? Why are the religious leaders so mad when he says that? Well, he's saying, I'm God. I've come for my people. I'm coming to make you jobless. I'm coming to take over. So you might read your scriptures and be like, okay. So it makes sense that God would appear to shepherds and feel. Over the centuries, he's referred to himself as shepherd. More than that, a lot of the heroes of the Old Testament are shepherds as well. You can think about Abel or Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. You think about Moses, you can think about King David. All of these people are shepherds. So yeah, okay. And kind of, I don't know, God's got a weird thing for shepherds in the Old Testament, like it seems. But there seems to be some evidence that by the time when Jesus comes, the view of shepherd has, has changed some and that they were uh, at best seen as one of the lowest classes in society um, to just being, uh, and at worst, to just being despised and looked down. Uh, there's one Lutheran scholar named Joachim Jeremias um, who made a summary of the view of shepherds that he saw in some of the Hebrew writings, be it the Mishnah or the Babylonian Talmud, or Philo, who was one Jewish contemporary of Jesus. And his findings were pretty startling about how the people during the time of Jesus viewed some of the shepherds. They presented a very low view of shepherds, even a disdain for shepherds. One writing he quotes said that if someone were to find a shepherd who had fell into a pit, don't even waste your time helping them up. <laughs> like, that's how brutal they viewed, like, I'm, I'm just like reading some of these, I'm just kind of shocked. So the, 
like even to the point where they didn't count their lives as being uh, worth or worth the effort to save. Um, other writings talked about shepherds being unreliable witnesses because they were all liars and thieves. All right. Um, being considered untrustworthy, never to do business with a shepherd because you would just assume that whatever he was selling you, it was probably stolen from someone who was earning a good salary. Philo, who was a contemporary of Jesus, he said this about shepherds. They are held to be mean and inglorious. And here, in our verses, we dwell on this and we're like, oh, shepherds, yeah, okay. Makes sense. Move along. <laughs> no, it seems that during the time of Jesus, shepherds, if you're going to make up a story that you wanted people to believe, again, this is not how you would go about doing that. If you wanted to start a religion, create a bunch of converts to try to follow you, you would not include shepherds in the narrative that were disdained and untrustworthy as one of the witnesses. Fast forward to the resurrection. You would also not use women as some of the witnesses for the resurrection because there's also a lot of disdain for them. Now, we today, we don't share the same view. <laughs> so it doesn't make any sense to us. But wind back 2,000 years. This is not how you start a religion. This is not how you start a story that you want people to buy into, to be willing to believe or even bleed for. And so while the shepherds were considered by their society not to be trustworthy witnesses or having valuable, uh, a valuable life, God in his infinite wisdom says, these are the guys I'm going to include in my story. They are the ones who will see the glory of the angels night, who experience what most others can only dream of. And they're the ones I'm going to use to bring a message to Mary and Joseph. Dirty shepherds coming in from the field <laughs> saying, hey, we saw something crazy in that field. For all the skeptics who would say the story of Jesus is just made up to create a religion that people would follow and fall into, you don't take those who are despised in society and considered unreliable witnesses and make them some of the main characters in the birth narrative of Jesus. You do not take those who society views as unreliable witnesses to be the main ones. And here in, in this story, God has brought low the proud as the pride of Caesar Augustus is simply highlighted as being used by God to bring in the real one with real glory, with real exaltation. And all of a sudden he has elevated those who are humble, like the shepherds in the field and said, you, I'm going to use you to testify about who this baby is. And he has elevated the lowly. But we read all these amazing words from the angel in verses 10 through 12. Hear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So when we read good news of great joy that will be for all the people, maybe we've heard that too many times. Maybe you've been a Christian for a few years. It's not your first rodeo. <laughs> you've heard the Christmas story before. These words have become familiar to you. 
But again, rewind. This word for good news is euangelion, gospel, or evangelical. Like that's where that word comes from, euangelion. A lot of the time it was used to refer to, hey, euangelion, good news, we have a new ruler. And what that typically meant is it was good news from people. It was definitely not good news for the people that he was taking over. And again, when, when Caesar Augustus defeated his enemies and imported a lot of wealth back to the Roman capital, it was good news for the people in the Roman capital who experienced a lot of prosperity, but not from the people who were being plundered. And so here comes a heavenly host that says, I have good news for all the people. And it's almost like it's being highlighted that this is for all the people because the audience who is hearing this are shepherds in the field. Not the political elite, not the Sadducees or the Pharisees, the religious elite, shepherds in the field. It, it's good news for the, for the king who will humbly see that, the king, that, that there's a king above all kings. It's good news for the shepherds who can find joy and hope knowing that God has accepted them, even though other men may look down on them or society at large may not give them acceptance. Your God is sure, no, you're mine. And what is this good news? In verse 11, it tells us, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. The good news is that you are a savior. And what I love about this, what is the not so subtle underlying message here? It's that you need a savior. I like this. The angels didn't come doing a survey. Hey, anybody need a savior in here? Anybody order a savior? He just comes in and be like, good news. You've got a savior. I'm not even going to ask you plebs about if you need one. I know you need one. Every single one of you needs one. Good news, you have a savior. It's not good news, you have got great new self-help guru who just published a new book that can really get you out of the rut you have in life, no. It's not good news, you have an awesome new political leader who's starting a new party and you can sign up for the mailing list, no. It's not good news, we have awesome new scientific breakthrough. No, this good news is supplying the need that is our fundamental problem in all of life. You need saving from yourself. You need saving from your sin. You need saving from your broken and sinful heart and the consequences that our sin has brought upon us, which is the deserved judgment of God. If God is to be righteous, if he is to be fair, if he is to judge evil, then what we all deserve is not reward to be with him, but rather be away from him. And here, the angels say good news to all the people, to everybody who needs a savior, which is all the people. There is a Savior who has come to deliver you, who has come to you because you could never approach 
You could never come to him saying, look at all the stuff I did. Look at the ladder I climbed. Look at all the things I did to earn heaven because you would stand before him and you would be exposed as a fool because you may be comparing yourself to someone who you think is horrible. We have some amazing historical figures that have done horrific things that you could compare yourself to and feel pretty great about. Right? Compare me to Paul Potts. I'm pretty nice. I didn't starve millions of people. To Stalin, to Hitler, to someone else. Like, yeah, I could look pretty good. But put me in the glory of God. Compare me to the perfect nature of God. And we all fail. More than that about this good news. news. He is the, the Christ King, Messiah. Messiah. So, so if you, if you didn't know, know this, Christ, Christ was not Jesus' last name. It was like, like he was Bond and when it's Bond, James Bond, when it's Christ, Jesus Christ. You know, this is Christ is a, is a title. And Christ is the Greek title. And this gets complicated. A Greek title of the Hebrew concept of a Messiah. And the Hebrew concept means an anointed one. So there you go. Meaning the anointed one. Now I love this. So this is still good news. He is the anointed one. To the proud, it says, you are not. Good news. You are not the Messiah. Like we even have a term for this. We call it a Messiah complex, right? You know any people like that who just want to be the savior all the time? Pop themselves up? Good news. He is the Christ. You're not. You can drop the facade of being perfect. You can drop the pretend to pretend like you, you got all your problems figured out and you've got no sins or weak spots. In, in a world that's telling you that success is elevating yourself or building your own kingdom or gaining reverence from people around you, the message of the angel says, hey, good news. This story is not about you at all. <laughs> you can drop all the, all the things, all the pressures that you put on yourself to be the one, the main character in your story. You are not the star of the story. And that is good news. Because if you try, right? this world will promise you, man, if you make yourself number one, and what you're going to get and what you're going to gain is joy, but it, it promises so much, but it never delivers. Oh, there is good news. This isn't about you. This is about his name. This is about his work, his kingdom, his greatness, his fame. And oddly enough, it's, it's when you focus shifts from everything being about you to, to him, then that's where you start to reap real joy because Ding, ding, ding. He's the one who created you. <laughs> and he actually knows what he created you for and where joy is to actually be found. And it's not found in you propping yourself up as being God in his place. And to the ones, you may be like, that's good for the proud people. I'm not proud. I'm the most humble person I know. I'm just kidding. Uh, but to you, you may have the exact opposite problem. Your problem is you don't look at yourself and you're like, man, I'm proud. Of course, God would want me. Of course. Look at me. I'm awesome. You know? No. Your problem is the exact opposite. We sing songs about the grace of God. And you say, that may apply to all these people. But you don't know me. You don't know how disgusting I am. <laughs> 
You don't know how the faults I have. You don't know my past. You don't know how worthless I am. <laughs> sure, I'll sing song about the amazing grace of God and me being a wretch, but that's going to stop there. But to the people who would hate themselves and deal with self-hatred, he says, good news. Do you feel weak? Do you feel unable? Do you feel ill-equipped? Good news. <laughs> Again, just like with the proud, this is not about you. This is about him who is the anointed one. This is, this is not on your shoulders, but this is on him to carry. And if you think yourself worthless, think again, he came because he thought you were worth saving. That's the whole Christmas story is him coming to save us, shower us with grace. And so for the proud and for the self-hating, if, if you try to live for anyone or anything else, as the anointed one in your life, the Christ in your life, let me tell you, it would only leave you sorely disappointed. Because whatever or whoever may be the object of your faith, it's going to be crushed under the weight of your expectations that they can never fulfill. And you're going to be very, very disappointed because it's all about Christ. He is the Lord. And lastly, there's good news because he is Lord. Now, me and Seiros, we were having a conversation this week. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? And many think it's just about believing in, in the fact that Jesus was a real person, really existed. Right? A lot of Icelanders were like, I believe in Jesus. And what they mean is, I believe that he was a real historical figure. But then you start to really think about it and you're like, actually, the devil believes in Jesus in that way. <laughs> He believes that Jesus existed. <laughs> so we have the faith of the devil uh, and demons. Like, what is that? So what does it mean to biblically have faith in Jesus? Well, it turns out we see all the components in our text today. We believe that he exists. Number one, we believe he is the Christ. He is the anointed one come to save us from our sins. The promised anointed one has been promised all throughout the Old Testament, our coming savior who saves us from our sins. So when we put our trust in him, we are putting our trust in him as being enough as a sacrifice for all of our sins and mistakes. And we believe that we are saved by faith alone in Jesus alone, and that we are forgiven by his grace alone, not our works. Everything else flows from this reality. When you go out into this week and you seek to glorify God, it's not to earn the love of God, but rather because you already have it. Right? And that's a joy. Like imagine being in a marriage and all of you would think about is, you know, remember not to hurt your wife. Remember not to hurt your wife. Remember not to hurt your wife. That's a bad marriage, right? <laughs> this is, sounds exhausting. Right? Instead of just focusing on no, love her. Just love her. That's so easy. Don't think about all the things you can. Just think about loving God with your head, with your heart, with your hands, and joyfully do so because he has already shown his love for you. And lastly, he's, he's not only, he doesn't only exist, he doesn't just come to save, 
But also as our text reminds us, he is Lord. This is all part of the good news of Jesus. Meaning he's the one who's throned on our life. I love, I love uh, uh, American bumper stickers. Uh, Americans are famous for bumper stickers. Like, I don't know, drive around Iceland, you will not see a single one with a bumper sticker. But Americans have a lot of bumper stickers, let me tell you. I remember when I lived in the U.S., I saw a bumper sticker. It said, Jesus is my co-pilot. And I was like, that's cute. But then, you know, years followed and it like, started to bother me. I don't want to be that guy. It's just a bumper sticker, but that's very theologically incorrect. <laughs> Jesus is not your co-pilot. He's not in the seat next to you, just enjoying the ride wherever you go. He's the guy driving. You're the guy just enjoying the ride. And that, that's what means Jesus is Lord. When we say Jesus is Lord, he is enthroned. He is lording over us. It's, it's about him. And many get this backwards, our God. They may bear the title of being a Christian and not yet, talk like they are Lord, like I am Lord. Like God exists to just jump whenever I say jump. God, I want more money. Give it to me. Come on. God, I want, I want more, <laughs> I want more romance. I want, you know, whatever, whatever you want. Like that's what God exists for. He just exists to fulfill my need. And, and if that is you, then let me just say that that probably lines up closer with the the spirit in Aladdin than, than the God of the mind, right? <laughs> that's unfortunately not, that not unfortunately, that's very fortunately not how God operates. You see a lot of people who want to pimp out God by offering people to come to him. Come to God and you get what you really want, be it fame or success or money or comforts. But what if God in his grace actually denies you fame? What if God in his grace actually denies you financial success because your character couldn't handle it at this moment? What if God in his grace is far more concerned about what your eternity is going to be like rather than what your next five years is going to be like? Now, there are other ways that Christians try to flip the script and as if they're a Lord and God is not pastors or Christians and, and in name, they dismiss the revelation of God and, and their ignorance. Like I've, I've unfortunately like uh, listening to radio, heard like priests talking about the Bible, laughing at ideas that are primitive and naive, like ideas of hell. And I just want to say, man, like, see, this is you flipping the script. This is you as a priest thinking that this is about you and what you feel and what you think when you're supposed to preach what God knows. When we come to Jesus, we come on his terms, realizing he is creator and we are created. He is wise and we sometimes very, very not wise <laughs> or just stupid. <laughs> Let's just say it how it is. He created us for himself and we surrender humbly by his grace. And many want to claim this easy Christianity to think that they are Christians because they believe that Jesus existed, but God does not give us that easy option. The message of the angel is good news. Yes, Jesus is real. More than that, he is 
a savior, and more than that, he is Lord. Take him as he is, or reject him as he is. But do not try to make him safe or fit your preconceived notions. Many want to come to Jesus as their savior, but you know, as their ticket to heaven, but they don't want to surrender their lives. And now we find peace when we believe that he is Christ. He is our savior. He is Lord. And these are the ones that God is pleased in. And the song of the angel gives us this amazing promise. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. There's no peace for all who turn to him as Christ. There is peace for all, sorry, there is peace for all who turn to him as Christ, as Savior, and as Lord. And it doesn't matter what your opinions, uh, what opinions others may have of you. It doesn't matter what your job description is. It doesn't matter how much power or authority or wealth or whatever else. God does not judge you by those things. It matters that you come to him. And lastly, as we go into the Christmas season, as we go into this week to our various families and jobs, I want us to take a page out of the, the shepherd's book because many, they want to hear this message. <laughs> oh, this is good news. And our job is not only to believe it, but also to do what the shepherds did. In verse 15, it says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. For you as a Christian, this message of the good news of Jesus is not only to you, for you, but it's also wanting to incorporate you as the witness to do something about it. Not only know more about God, but continue your worship as you go into your jobs. You give, uh, seek opportunities to tell others about Jesus, to show the love of Christ, to show the impact of Jesus on your life, to be used by him. Right? Don't just hear a message. Can you imagine if it ended up, oh, that was interesting. <laughs> Did you guys all see the angels? <laughs> interesting. Let's think about this. <laughs> Baby in a manger. What could that possibly mean? And that was just their story. They just stayed in the field. Don't be that person. So we go into this Christmas. May this story impact you in such a way that you want to go and you want to see God at work. Right? Not only hear about it. So you're in here. You're a Christian, meaning Jesus Christ not only exists, he's your savior, he's your Lord. I want you to remember with us the crucifixion of Jesus, the sacrifice on our behalf that cleanses us of our sins, who makes us new. And if you're in here and you have not yet surrendered your life in this way and you want to do that today, please talk with me after the service. I would love to pray with you as you take these first steps in following Jesus because they are beautiful, but also man, you got a target on your back. As soon as you want to follow Jesus and build up his fame, there are dark forces at play who want to tear down what God is doing in your life. So I would love to pray with you and for you. So let's pray and sing together as we remember Christ. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your amazing grace. Uh, we ask that you be with us as we go into this week. May we be like the shepherds who go and see what you are doing outside of here. Father, we have heard the message that you exist, that you have sent a savior, that you have sent a Lord. And may we joyfully follow you into whatever you have for us this week to glorify you, to make you known. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kirka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with the Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavor, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland. Iceland.